This is the final lesson in section six about the Bible. We are in this section called Bibliology. The nature of the Bible is what we've been looking at. And uh, I imagine this lesson will take us a couple of Sundays. Yes, sir. Let me see it. Well, see, here's the deal. I forgot my notebook at home. Yeah, we did. We did. We finished 30 last week. We were talking about, at the very end, we were talking about when people say, uh, yeah, I'll trust the Bible. If it, if it fell down from heaven, I would trust it. That's where, yeah. Okay, all right, very good. So now we're going to talk about the sufficiency of scriptures, where we are today. We've talked about um, inspiration and inerrancy. That's taken us the last two or three weeks. <clears throat> Who can give me a definition for inspiration while we're here? The inspiration of scripture, what's that all about? Nope. It should be on page 29 of your, hand, of your uh, sheets there. A definition of inspiration. What is inspiration? Okay, good. It means that Scripture is God-breathed. That's in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it said Scripture is God-breathed. Many translations say Scripture is inspired. That's what that word means. I should have a definition on there for you on 29 about... Um, Oh, it's God's intervention into human history. Do you have something about that there on page 29? What does that say? What does it say? Hey, that's a great definition. That's good. Yeah, that's what inspiration is, okay? That God has intervened into history to give us truth, the revelation of His truth, <clears throat> which is all truth, by way of human authors. And then inerrancy naturally follows from that. What's inerrancy mean? Just really simple, basic definition. Not looking for anything long. Good. Yeah, no error. So um, errancy, if you take off the I-N at the start there, to be errant means to be wrong. To be inerrant means not wrong. Okay? The Bible is not wrong in anything it discusses. It is inerrant. If it's inspired, it is inerrant. Well, today we're going to talk about sufficiency. We're just, this flows downstream from this, okay? We've got God inspiring His Word. We've got the, the Word being inerrant. Now we have the concept of the Word being sufficient, all right? So let me ask you this as we get started. Are we to look outside of the Bible for words from God? Okay, wow, wow. That was a strong no. Okay. How about this? Is the Bible sufficient for leading us in all matters pertaining to godliness? Oh, okay. Strong, strong responses. That's good. I like to hear strong responses. Well, the truth is, of course, the ramifications of this are endless. If you say yes on either one of those questions, it takes you in a different direction than where we go as a church, okay? Um, well, if you say, sorry, if you say yes to the first one or no to the second one, it takes you in a different direction. Um, so you really have to decide where you are on this issue. At the end of the day, this is the heart of the sufficiency of Scripture, that we have all the words from God that we need pertaining to godliness. Okay? So here's a definition from Wayne Grudem. The second half of this quote is what's on the top of your sheet with the fill-in-the-blanks there. All right? So the full quote is this. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained, past tense, all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. 
And here's where I'm giving you the definition for today, so you can start filling in the blanks at this point. And that it, Scripture, now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. Now, we will revisit the first half of that definition here momentarily, but for now, let's focus on the second half, that currently, Scripture, the Bible, contains all the words of God we need, all the words we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. Basically, God has not sold us short. God has not left us wanting when it comes to what we need for salvation or for trusting Him or for obeying Him, okay? So, I mean, consider this, just what's in yellow here. Scripture now contains all we need for obeying God perfectly. There are some pretty big ramifications, and we'll hit those. And so it's, it's great that I've gotten you to agree to this up front, because you, maybe you're not thinking of all the ramifications, okay? <laughs> and you don't know what you've signed up for. But we'll, we'll look at that here, okay? God's Word, as it should say is, a seed that grew to full maturity with Jesus' first coming and the apostles' function as the church's foundation. This doctrine is called progressive revelation. So let me perhaps help illustrate the point here. By let's, uh, let's consider Adam, Moses, um, let's go, hmm, let's go um, Jonah, um, and then Paul, and us, okay? All right. We have 100% of... God-inspired scripture today, don't we? Aren't we thankful for that? We have the completed Bible. If you go back here, how much did Adam have of revelation from God? Compared to us, not much, right? I mean, you think about in the beginning, God's talking to him there in the garden. Um, we, do we have every word in Genesis? Do we have every word that God revealed to Adam? Uh, no, I imagine there were conversations that God and Adam had that aren't recorded in Genesis. But did Adam know about Jesus of Nazareth? Did he know about the church? Did he know about Israel? <laughs> did he know about anything pertaining to end times? Maybe just slightly. I mean, you could kind of make an argument. Did he know much about angels and demons? Did he know much? I mean, not a lot, okay? And so you can't really put a percentage on it. But what we can do is just kind of go like this, right, and say um, there's this kind of thing going on in Scripture where Adam had just a little bit comparatively to what we have today. But Moses had more than Adam. I mean, Moses, you know, received the Ten Commandments, the whole of the law. He uh, experienced all sorts of things with God that he was able to relay to Israel. Jonah, you go a few hundred years more in the future, he had more. Paul, of course, had more. Paul you know, he almost gets to 100%, but there were some letters written after Paul died. You've got some letters from John, like Paul didn't have the book of Revelation. That's pretty interesting, isn't it, when you start thinking about the timeline that way? And how blessed are we that we have all of the Bible, we have all of, all of what God has given us. Now, um, here's an important point as we consider this. God's Word has been sufficient through all stages of progressive revelation. So this chart this really rudimentary chart, is summing up what progressive revelation is. God 
gives a little more, right, with each of these uh, passing generations from, you know, each to each until it's all the way completed from each generation. Yet, in each one, did Adam, all the way back here, with this little amount that he had, did Adam have all that he needed to trust God perfectly and obey God perfectly? Okay. So, so this is, you know, where I want, I want your mind to, to really get this, okay? That even though Adam didn't have all that we have today, even Paul didn't have all that we have today, in each generation, God has given man all that he needs to trust God perfectly, to obey God perfectly, and for salvation, all right? So even though we now know more of what God has said, that doesn't mean we are now sufficient and previous generations were insufficient, or that God's word was insufficient in previous generations. That's not what that means. That could be an implication as you think through that, but that's not it. God gave Adam all that he needed for life and godliness. He gave Moses all that he needed for life and godliness, and on and on. Yeah, right. Well, and they, of course, you know, were writing things down as time went on. You know, Jonah inherited Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Torah. And, uh, you know, the book of Isaiah. Paul knew the book of Isaiah really well. He had the whole Old Testament. All right? Um, So God, even though he didn't give everything at the beginning, he progressively revealed it. In each generation, it was sufficient. All right? Now, here's a little uh, math equation for you. You have uh, infallibility plus completeness, and the answer is equals sufficiency. If God's revelation to us is infallible and complete, it follows that it is sufficient for teaching us how to live. Someone look on page either 29 or 30 in your notes and tell me what infallibility is. If I remember right, it's on the bottom of page 29. I'm without my notebook, so I... Have to go off memory. The bottom of page 29, what is infallibility? Very good. Infallibility means it's impossible for something or someone to err. So God is infallible. Can God ever make a mistake? Could God ever intentionally do something wrong? No. So whether intentional or unintentional, God is always perfect in all of his ways. God's word, then, as a product of God, breathed out by God, is infallible. It is incapable of erring. And yet, it's also the complete word of God. We have the completeness of what God has revealed. And so, when you take those two together, we have God's sufficient word. It is incapable of erring, and it's all that we need. And if Scripture is truly sufficient, then it is enough for us to obey Him perfectly in all things. Now, Will we obey him perfectly in all things? No. (laughs) But is that a problem with Scripture? No. Okay. That's where you got to make that distinction in your mind. Okay. The problem is never, you can't ever look at the Bible and say, well, that's not enough for me to obey God perfectly. That's why I messed up. You can't blame that on the Bible. Okay. You have to look at yourself and say, there's a shortcoming in me. The Bible's infallible. I'm fallible. Right. And so you can't blame Scripture. Okay, only God through Scripture can authoritatively correct and instruct. So let's look at a few passages here, starting in Genesis chapter 2. I think we'll just look at all these together. So let's all turn to Genesis 2 together. And let's see now as God starts revealing, 
Let's look at his authoritative revelation, his authoritative instruction. Now place yourself in in the garden as Adam or as Eve here and think about this being essentially, you know, what you have from God as revelation. Now this isn't, again, I don't think this is all, but this is a good chunk of the revelation that they had. So someone read verses 15 through 17. Okay, go ahead, Rex. Wow. So you think of, okay, this is what God has said. You know, you're Adam or you're Eve. This is what God has said. This is the revelation that you have. Was that sufficient? Well, yeah. This is from the mouth of God. This is the authoritative word of God. There's sufficiency there for them. Now, uh, did they obey him perfectly? Of course not. That's the next chapter, right? They failed in this command. But the problem wasn't they had an insufficient Bible. The problem wasn't they had an insufficient word from God. That was sufficient. The problem was in their own carrying it out. Okay? Same thing in Deuteronomy 6. So let's go to Deuteronomy 6 together, the fifth book of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, and then also chapter 8, verse 3. Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 9, and then chapter 8, verse 3. Who can read that one for us? Stan, go ahead. Okay, and then chapter 8, verse 3, too, if you don't mind there, Stan. <laughs> you don't have Deuteronomy 8, 3 memorized? All right. So back in chapter 6, there was that, that great Shema passage. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or listen. So it's the great... Listen passage, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and he goes on to say, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And he says these commands I'm commanding you today, put them in front of you everywhere. Did you catch that in chapter 6? On your forehead, on the, on the doorposts, everywhere. Why, why do you think God commanded that, to do that, about his, or to do that with his commands? Why is that? And why is that important? Of? Good. A constant reminder of God's authority to instruct us, to correct us. The sufficiency of His commands. That what He gave us is sufficient. That it would be constantly before Him. And and that's chapter 8, verse 3 that Stan read, that Jesus quotes in Matthew 4 during the temptation in the wilderness. Man lives not by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, if the word of God was insufficient, you couldn't live by everything that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. But because his word is sufficient, you can say, I, I live by this. It's, it's like food to me, that what he has given me is sufficient for life, for my living. Okay? These Verses, a lot of them we know. I mean, the, the two passages that we just looked at in Deuteronomy, I assume you, you know them, you've seen them before. These are pointing to God's authority and His instruction and the sufficiency of His Word. We see it again in Psalm 19. Let's go there together. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. And look at what the psalmist says. Look at the qualities he attributes 
to the Lord's word, to his law, to his commands. Look at the, uh, the qualities that are revealed here. And then think about sufficiency. As you're observing these, think about sufficiency. Okay, Psalm 19, 7 to 11. Who's got it? Mike, go ahead. All right, so look at how this passage points to sufficiency. Even that, that first line in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Perfection means sufficient, doesn't it? Perfection means you need nothing else to come alongside and correct or add to. And then as you keep looking down, there's surety. Okay, the testimony of the Lord is sure. The Lord's precepts are right. God's commandments are pure. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous. So this all points to not only inerrancy, not only inspiration, but also sufficiency. God's word is sufficient. Okay? And then one of my favorite passages in the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll read this to us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Look at how, or consider how Peter says this. 2 Peter 1, verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our, our Lord. Verse 3 seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Verse 3 is amazing. That's a long verse, but it's an amazing verse. God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That is a humongous statement. That's a statement that like fills the earth. It's so big. God's power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And consider when Peter wrote this in the first century. What were technological advancements like back then? Now, compared to 1,000 or 2,000 years before Peter, it was really advanced. But compared to today, it's like, whoa, that was rough. What about uh, medicinal advancements, the medical world? Um, What about just overall convenience? Uh, It was very uncomfortable to live back then, wasn't it? Uh, What about uh, socially? Did everybody like the Christians back there in the first century when Peter wrote this? No. So like, Peter himself was persecuted. He was placed in prison, wasn't he? And he says, God's given me everything I need for life and godliness. Even his environment was very difficult. And yet, that's his testimony. God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Wow. Thoughts on any of these passages or how they relate to sufficiency? I'll pause here for a moment. Good? Okay. The only authority over your life is God as He has revealed Himself. This is extremely important to remember, okay? Um, In Romans 13, there is no authority but God, and the authorities that do exist exist from God. So is the government an authority over your life? Well, yes, that's true. The government is an authority. Um, 
as God has designed it. But where do they get their authority? From God. So whether you're talking about in the culture, in the home, with uh, husbands and fathers, with mothers to their children, or you're talking in the church, any kind of authority that exists, it's from God. And anybody who's outside of what God has commanded, well, it's better to obey God than man, isn't it? And again, going back to Peter being persecuted, when he was being persecuted and they were saying, you cannot speak in the name of Jesus anymore, he says, oh, now, now all of a sudden you are no longer my authority. Because it's, so better to, it's better to obey, obey God than it is to obey you. And so they put him in prison and he just kept obeying God. Revisiting 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, if you're there in the New Testament, just turn back a few pages to 2 Timothy 3. Now, we looked at this last week. This is a very important passage. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here we have inspiration tied to sufficiency, don't we? Because you have Scripture being God-breathed, which is the word for inspired, God-breathed, And where does that lead to for the man of God in verse 17? What does it say? So that the man of God may be what? Good. Adequate, or you could say mature, or complete, equipped. Yeah, fully equipped, right? So because Scripture is inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it is sufficient. That's the simple connection here. It is sufficient. And what's it sufficient for? What does it say here in this passage? What is Scripture sufficient for? Correction and training. Yeah, and so you look at these four aspects, and each of them kind of, I mean, they comprise the whole of the Christian life. It's profitable for teaching you what is true, addressing the information in your brain, but also training you in righteousness, not just brain head knowledge, but also how to live it out, how to apply, okay, training in righteousness. And then look at the two in the middle, for reproof and for correction. When you're off the path, it can bring you back on the path, can't it? It can correct those who oppose. And so you consider all these things that Scripture can do, and where are you lacking? You're not lacking anywhere. Scripture is completely sufficient for your life. So what that means then is you do not need these things to obey God. You don't need revelation beyond Scripture. Because Scripture is sufficient. It's God-breathed. It will make you equipped and adequate. You don't need revelation beyond Scripture. You don't need trendy strategies. Now, are there some ways in which trendy strategies can be helpful? Well, sure, Um, they can be helpful. This isn't to say that everything outside of the Bible is unhelpful. Uh, You know, self-help books, I can kind of make that a hobby horse and knock self-help books down. But do self-help books have some helpful information sometimes? Are they truly self-helpful sometimes? Yes, in the right view, okay? But do you need them to obey God? No, you do not. No, you do not. Uh, As a pastor, I hear all kinds of things all the time about church strategies. You know, they... Church growth strategies, those always crack me up. Like, yeah, Jesus said, I will build my church with man's strategies. You know, then that's not what he said. And so those are silly. 
But are there some things as pastors get together and kick around ideas about what's going on in the church and things you can do and th ways you can keep up and all that? Yes, that's, very, that's all helpful. But do you need those things to obey God, to trust God? No, you don't. Okay. Secular psychology or secular therapy, do you need that to obey God perfectly? Ooh, okay. So now we're honing in on the issues here. Now we're getting ready to touch on issues. I, I say secular here because do you need biblical counseling? Yes, you do, okay? And there's a difference between those two. Okay, do you need, in order to obey God in this life and trust God in this life, do you need to sit down with a pagan and have him tell you what Freud said? Okay, so when I put it in those terms, it's easy to say no, right? But yeah, you recognize there is a spectrum to that, and you've got to be careful in that big wide world of therapy, counseling, and all that stuff. You do not need the right environment to trust God and obey God. Think about the difficult environments that people were in in Scripture. I mean, there are so many people that were placed in difficult situations who are commended for their faith. Hebrews 11 walks through and talks about the faith of those different people. Did they have easy, comfortable lives? Did they have the perfect environment as they would sketch it up? I mean, look at, look at Daniel. Yeah, would he have chosen the fiery furnace or the lion's den, you know, him and his friends? No. No. Would they have chosen to be in a place where the king says, do this or you'll die, and this went against Scripture? No. The apostles, um, Jesus himself, right? You do not need the right environment to obey God. You don't need coffee to obey God. Uh, <clears throat> so I am, you know, like, that's half tongue-in-cheek up there, but, you know, sometimes we can kind of talk like that, like, ah, I can't, you know, I, I, I can't be a Christian until I drink coffee. Be careful, be careful. How about this one? This is a really tricky one. Uh, to obey God and to trust God perfectly, do you need medicine? <laughs> well, okay. So this is where the rubber meets the road on this, right? Because we have a, a vast world now of identified mental disorders and things of that nature. Um, things that have been around for a long time that didn't have the names that they have until recently. But here's, here's the challenge with the view of, I, you know, I can't be a Christian without my, my meds or whatever. What about the Christians who had those conditions before those meds existed, right? Were they unequipped? Mm. It's difficult, isn't it, to work through those issues, but that's where the rubber meets the road. There was a woman in our church uh, when we first got here about 10 years ago who, um, let's see, who in this room would know her? We're, Rex, Rex will probably instantly remember. Renee will, I might have to, I'll tell you afterwards who it was. I'll remind you. <laughs> she had had a, uh, a brain operation. She had brain surgery. And after her brain surgery, the way that she phrased it, and I don't know the scientific uh, you know, terms on any of this. I don't know if she does either. But basically, she said that um, through this operation that she needed to get, her filter was taken away in her brain. 
So she could no longer restrain herself from saying anything. <laughs> so imagine how this was, you know, and you're in church together and you don't know what's about to come out of her mouth. Okay, and she says, and she says, I have no control. Okay, well, um, the counsel that she got from uh, the pastor's wife at that time in our church was, okay, that might be the case that your filter is gone, but let's work on those thoughts that come up before the filter. Um, because, you know, Jesus says out of the heart, the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let's address the heart issues there. No, 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 I can't do it. See, that's easy for you to say because you have your filter and I don't have a filter. So again, where the rubber meets the road when it comes to our counseling is the word of God sufficient for addressing the issues we face. Some people will say yes to that on paper and then they get into certain uh, life circumstances and they say, no, I, I, you know, the Bible is good as, as far as it goes, but I need X, Y, Z in addition to that in order to obey God. Got to be careful about how we talk about this, don't we? In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it is written this way, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. You see, at the heart of this uh, articulation of Scripture sufficiency is, or not Scripture sufficiency necessarily, but at the heart of this articulation of living for God is what Scripture says. Okay? It's, living for God is tied directly to the sufficiency of Scripture. It is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence it may be deduced from Scripture. And remember, these were guys who were still, uh, the guys who wrote this, put this together, they were still living by candlelight. This was, you know, before, like, electricity, let alone, let alone the Internet, let alone modern medicine, let alone all these other things that we have. And so for them, I think it was probably a lot easier to see the sufficiency of Scripture. We have a lot of add-ons in our lives, don't we? John Frame says, Scripture is necessary, comprehensive, and sufficient to deal with the decisions that we must make in our lives. Necessary, comprehensive, sufficient to deal with the decisions that we must make in our lives. I want to read to you a portion from Heath Lambert's book, A Theology of Biblical Counseling. Really, really neat book. He, uh, he's now pastor of First Baptist Jacksonville which is a church of like 700,000 people or something crazy. Uh, those Southern Baptist churches, when you get down there in the, in the South, it's just like wild. But um, he's a very good biblical counselor. And uh, what he does in this book is each chapter is based on a different area of theology, and he ties it back to counseling. So the you know, first chapter will be on uh, the nature of God, theology proper, like we've talked about in this class. The next chapter, Christology, the theology of Christ, or pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And he ties it back to real case scenarios in counseling. And in his section on Scripture, he gives this example. He, uh, he uses uh, examples from his own counseling experience. And here he's talking about a, a young person named Trinian. I don't know if that's the person's real name, but that's the, person, that's the name that he used. A w- young woman named Trinian who had been cutting herself. And so he walks through here how 
our doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture plays into counseling situations like that. So I'm going to read to you an extended section here. Listen to how he phrases this. The sufficiency of Scripture is important for a very practical reason. In counseling, when people share their most serious and secret problems, counselors need to have something to say. We need guidance about how to respond to such information. Trinian is a great example. I sat in my office listening to her that day as she shared some very painful information with me. She told me of deep heartache in her life and how she came to begin cutting her legs with a small knife. She bought at a craft store. After Trinian shared her story with me, she quit talking. It was my turn to speak. Now, all of us will be in situations like this. Um, You might think this just for professional counselors or just for pastors or whatever, but all of us get into these conversations, don't we? And someone starts sharing something, and then they stop, and now it's your turn? Okay, let me keep reading. That moment when the counselor must respond to the pain that has been revealed by a broken person is one of the most sacred occasions in all of life. Another human being has just revealed something intimate, profound, and difficult about her life, and now she is waiting for a response. These moments make me powerfully aware of my responsibility as a counselor to offer wisdom and care. These moments are very telling because what we say in them reveals where our trust is. Whatever we say demonstrates a reliance on some source of authority. There is no flight from this reality. In those times, like the one I experienced with Trinian, the words that fill the silence show what counseling resources you believe to be the most informative, helpful, and trustworthy. The wisdom that comes out of your mouth demonstrates where your trust is. Whether it is the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of secular psychology, or your own personal brand of wisdom, or the wisdom of the God of the Bible. Whenever you speak, you do it out of a commitment to some kind of wisdom. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is a promise that God Himself will give you something from Him to say in those sacred moments. It is a great comfort to me to know that I do not have to make up my own wisdom, and I do not have to rip off the wisdom of secular therapy. I can go to Scripture and find something to say to people like Trinian that will be God's sufficient word for them. Where the rubber meets the road, right? Thoughts, questions on, uh, on any of that there? Wow. I am nigh shocked that you have nothing to say or ask. I thought this is as far as we were going to make it today. That's okay. <clears throat> I'll keep going. Okay, well, if you have questions later, ask me, email me. Let's talk about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, what a fun word, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics has traditionally been defined as the art and science of biblical interpretation. Art and science of biblical interpretation. So we've talked about Scripture being inspired, Scripture being inerrant, Scripture being sufficient, and now we're going to talk about how we understand Scripture, how we are to interpret Scripture, how we are to study Scripture. And this is a joy for us, because if God has given us His Word that is sufficient and perfect, then we better know how to interpret it, okay? So really, this is like the final step as far as uh, our doctrine of Scripture goes. How do we understand it so that we can have a right view of what God has said? Roy Zuck has said, actually, his name is Zuck. I just found this out. I met the guy... uh, who was his pastor for a while. 
Um, he was a professor at Dallas Seminary for a number of years, and I was uh, talking to a, a fellow pastor who pastored in Dallas where Roy Zook went to uh, church, and he referred to him as Roy Zook, and I said, oh, mental note. I've been pronouncing his name wrong for the last 15 years. So Roy Zook, and he also said, it's kind of funny, he was Dr. Zook, and uh, you know he, he had earned his doctorate. It wasn't an honorary thing, and uh, he was one of the few guys you know, who wouldn't say, call me Roy. You know, a lot of those guys who have doctorates, you, 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 know, you meet them, hey, Dr. Smith, well, call me, you know, John. He never said, call me Roy. It was always Dr. Zook, okay? So <laughs> he's dead now, but uh, when you refer to him, maybe it should be Dr. Zook. It's the science or principles and art, the task, by which we, the meaning of the biblical text is determined, okay? So interpreting the Bible is both an art and a science, and it's very, very important that we understand how this works. There are, of course, many challenges to understanding the Bible, and we know this. There's a time gap. When was the last book of the Bible written? We don't know the exact year, but you can say, give or take, how many years ago? About 2,000 years ago. That's a pretty big time gap. A few things have happened in the last 2,000 years, right? And uh, the time gap really makes it difficult. Space gap. How many of uh, the books of the Bible were written in the United States? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um, they were, you know, the books of the Bible were written technically on uh, three continents, but when you think of like the uh, radius of where these books were written, it's pretty, pretty tight-knit locations there. None of them were written in Utah. Because of that, the time and space gap, that really leads to the cultural gap, too. Uh, you'll see some references in there to fishing and farming and all sorts of agrarian things that they did back then that many of us have either never learned how to do or perhaps forgotten how to do. But that was their life, was just living that way. They would fish, they would farm, they would do these things. And so we have to go back and understand the culture at that time to a degree so we can understand some of what was communicated. There's a language gap. How many books of the Bible were written in English? None. None. In fact, uh, none of the Romantic languages even, Spanish, Italian, French, none of those. We're talking Greek and Hebrew and a little bit in Aramaic, which are very foreign to us. The writing gap, the way that they went about writing back then, again, based on culture and uh, you know, the time period, it was different than the way that we write today in some ways. All right? So there's a gap there, too, that we have to access. And then also a spiritual gap in the sense of how many of them were writing after the church was up and running? If you take the whole Bible, after Jesus ascended on high, after the day of Pentecost, how many books of the Bible were written um, really when the church came to fruition, where you have different churches with pastors and elders in each church, and each of these local churches is well established? Not many, not many books. There are some, but not many. We live in a time, like uh, for those of you maybe who were raised in church, what you've known is the local church. They've got you know, their own property. They've got a sign. They've got pastors there, deacons there. You come down, you do your fellowship thing, and it's very different than what it looked like in the first century. You read through the book of Acts, and they're wrestling with, how do Gentiles and Jews get along? Because you have this transition from the nation of Israel to the multinational church. So that was a very different spiritual environment than the one that perhaps we were raised in or the one we were saved in. 
So it's, it's difficult. We have all these gaps that we have to bridge and we have to put ourselves in their shoes, or sandals you should say, I guess, to uh, understand where they're coming from in a better way. So how do we rightly interpret this book? You've got this book sitting in front of you. It's this ancient book. How do you rightly interpret it? Well, first you've got to recognize you can rightly interpret it. Maybe that's the biggest hurdle for some people. It's like, well, I can never understand this. No one could ever truly understand what God intends for them to understand. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. All right? So first have to embrace the concept that you can rightly interpret it. But... Think of it pretty simply. How would you read a letter from the past? Um, Virginia, you've stumbled upon old letters and old postcards and all kinds of stuff that you found in books, I imagine, right? That's one of my favorite things about going to antique stores and buying old books. You never know what you'll find in there. Uh, And I've found some really interesting things. But when you find an old note or a postcard, even if it was just 20 plus years ago, can you rightly interpret what's going on in that, in that letter? Okay, <laughs> good, yeah, okay. If it's in a language you can understand. But, but say a postcard, for example. You can understand like, well, let me, I think I got some examples here. Um, as we can look at the context of it, you can, you'll see something like, I hope you're doing better. Well, what does that inform you? Yeah. Something had been wrong. Someone was sick or something was, they'd gone through a tragedy or something. If you see a a line like this, it's been great getting to know you. You look at this old letter and maybe you don't know who these people are, but you can start to understand based on context what was going on. Where it's like, oh, well, apparently they just got closer in recent history. They just either met or have been getting closer. Or if someone says, see you soon, you know that that person has plans to go visit that person. So you look at the context of what's going on in, say, an old letter, and it helps you learn a whole lot of what's going on. Well, you go to the Bible, and we've got more than just a postcard. The books of the Bible are much more than just a tiny little thing, but we've got names, we've got places, we've got timelines, we've got all sorts of stuff going on, and you start looking at the context. That is what is key. You you look at the context, and you start to understand how to interpret this book. So hermeneutics is really just a study in discerning the context to understand what God has said. Context, context, context. Each book of Scripture was written with purpose to certain people in a specific time in a specific place. So just like letters of old that you would find, you understand that the books of the Bible are no different. They were written with purpose to certain people in a specific time in a specific place. All very important to understanding the context. And we'll walk through some examples of how to do this wrongly, uh, maybe today, but maybe next week, um, where you just approach it like a normal book, okay? Uh, Knowing that it is the Word of God, it is a divine book, but it was written by human authors with purpose, and we can understand what it has said. Questions on this at this point? making me go farther in my notes than I want to go, than I'm prepared to go, but it'll be okay. Yes? Yeah, one of the amazing things about um, the, here's a, here's a fun word for you, perspicuity of Scripture. Believe it or not, that word means clarity. Okay. <laughs> 
One of the amazing things about the clarity of Scripture is that you can give it to a a four-year-old who's just learning to read. And that four-year-old can read it and understand it. And then you can go through it as an 80-year-old who's read the Bible 80 times and see things you've never seen before and make applications you've never made before. And the whole time, Scripture's been clear, but God is just so, so good to us in that we go to His Word and He continues to instruct us. It's pretty amazing. Rex. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, every verse of Scripture is packed with multiple information points. And so often when we read through a passage, we'll take one information point from one, two, three, four verses. You go back through, there's so much more to see. I mean, you just take Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's so much to see in that one verse. Who created the heavens and the earth? Well, God did. And you dwell on that point for a while. Where did God come from? God's already there in, in Genesis 1.1. That's a pretty important point. You've got to think through that. When did God create? It says in the beginning. When's in the beginning? You've got to think through that. I mean, there's so much, and that leads you on a study of looking at other passages. And so there are multiple information points in every verse, and it's important that we recognize that you cannot plumb the depths of Scripture. You can't reach the bottom and say, okay, done. <laughs> Last week, I think it was Friday, turned on my car and key radio was on, and the first thing I heard was Erwin uh, Lutzer's, uh, I don't know, like radio guy who does the intro and the outro. <laughs> The first thing I heard is he said, Erwin Lutzer has completed Becoming Like God. And, you know, it, it was all like a one sentence, but in that split second, I was like, what on earth did I just hear? And then he said, a sermon series based on, you know, whatever book. <laughs> but you will never complete, okay, Becoming Like God. You will never complete seeing all that there is to see in Scripture. It'll just never happen. And as we think about context, too, on this point, do you remember when we were talking about the inspiration of Scripture, and I was asking you, is the Bible God's words or human, the human author's words? Well, ultimately, these are God's words. Ultimately, these are the words of God. But did, you know, Mark, John Mark, did John, did Hosea choose their own words? Yes, but did God superintend the process so they said exactly what he wanted them to say? Yes. All right, well, this is important because you have Paul writing his letters, and is Paul writing to, uh, say, we'll take Philemon, for example. Was Paul writing with purpose to a certain person in that case at a specific time in a specific place? Well, yes. He's writing to Philemon and saying, I've got this slave here, Onesimus, he ran away from you, we're all Christian brothers, and here's how we can work this out. Context is extremely important there. If you go to Philemon and you're not looking for context at all, you're not paying attention to context, you can, of course, make any verse say whatever you want it to say, right? You've encountered people like that, I'm sure. I've encountered a lot of them, where they take the Word of God, they pull a Scripture out of context... And when it's out of its context, open season. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. In our doctrinal statement, it says, we believe in the normal, literal, and consistent interpretation of the Scriptures. That means that our interpretation of the Bible is to be 
literal, grammatical, historical, and consistently contextual. And you see there at the bottom of your sheet, we're going to go through this. We'll start this next week. We've got the literal interpretation that we'll cover, and we'll look at some example passages, and I will share with you how some people take them not so literally. Okay, so we have uh, the literal aspect, and then on the next page, grammatical, historical, consistently contextual. We'll cover all that next week and finish the lesson then, okay? That is where we will go. Anything else before I close us in prayer? Very good. Well, it's going to be about three or four minutes before we can go over to the auditorium, so hang out here in the lobby, and then we'll move on to the next thing. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day and for the opportunity to discuss your word. Please help us to not only grow in our knowledge of these things, but also to apply them to our lives, that we would cherish your word more that we would rightly see the place that your word has in our lives, that you have spoken, you are our authority, and you've given us this revelation to obey, to trust you, that we would know how to live. God, thank you so much for being so kind as to do this. You you have not needed to do this. You've done so out of your grace, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.